Perhaps if you're new somewhere, one of the scariest things there is about being somewhere new is finding a place to sit. Do you remember when you started high school or college, and if you started a new high school or college, and where are you going to sit, right? Uh, What table can I find where I can have someone to spend time with and where I don't feel like a weirdo sitting by myself? Uh, I can remember my first year of Bible college, or it was actually my second at Moody Bible Institute. They did this great thing, and they had... Uh, they had these long tables that went around the whole circumference of the cafeteria. And in the center, they had a bunch of these round tables. Well, the, the rectangle tables on the outside, they arranged a kind of like, it wasn't assigned seating, but you had your, your floor that you were on with your group of guys, and they arranged you, they partnered you up with a floor with a group of girls, and they reserved those rectangle tables, uh, you know, um, for, for a bro-sis table, it was called, a brother and sister floor. But you know, social stratification is everywhere, even in uh, Bible college. And so you would sit in the rectangle tables if you didn't know anybody. But if you were cool, and I've never really had this experience, but if you were cool, (laughs) you could go into the center of the cafeteria, right? And you would sit in the round tables, and that's where there was no assigned seating. Social stratification is everywhere. I can remember in high school, you know, probably high school is the place uh, where social stratification is the strongest. You know, the jocks sit with the jocks, the geeks sit with the geeks, the, uh, I don't know, the band people sit with the band people, the drama people sit with the drama people. I just went to the library and studied and tried to stay out of it, you know? But every single plot line of every teeny bopper movie I've ever seen goes something like this. Let me just set the tone for this for a second. A kid is looking at the table that they wish they could sit at, right? A kid is looking at the table that they wish they could sit at. They find they are not able to sit there, and they've got their friend that they sit with, and they are dreamingly looking at the table they wish they were at. And then finally, one of those friends finally does something, becomes something. Maybe sometimes it's a superhero movie, and he becomes super powerful, and all of a sudden he can go and sit at the cool table, right? And he goes and sits at the cool table, And then all of a sudden, he starts to go through this, or she starts to go through this transformation. For all my life, I wanted to sit at the cool table, and now I'm finally there, and I'm not so sure I like the cool table anymore. These people are mean, and I'm losing all my friends from before. Maybe I am not, you know, at the right table. Maybe the table I've always dreamed about is not the table that I really want to be at. So far in this series, A Place at the Table, we've been looking at different uh, types of people who Jesus had a place for that society at large back 2,000 years ago during the time of Jesus did not, right? In week one, we looked at a woman who is a sinful woman, likely a prostitute, a loose sexual woman, and society at large says, you are dirty, get away, and Jesus says, there's a place at the table for you. Go and sin no more, right? Week two, we looked at tax collectors. We all hate tax collectors, right? And they hated them even more back then because they were thieves, right? And Jesus says, not only there's a place at the table for you, but Jesus calls Matthew, and he becomes one of the 12 disciples, one of the key followers, and he walks away from that old life. In week three, we looked at a man born blind who had so many issues health-wise that in that society... They just, he just sat on the side of the road and begged and didn't even know who was walking by, right? Because he is blind. And Jesus comes and heals him and says, there's a place at the table for you. 
And last week we looked at a centurion who's uh, outside of the national identity of Israel, the Jewish religious community, and Jesus says that he has more faith than anyone he's ever seen because of the way he responds to Jesus. And there's a place at the table for you. See, everyone we've looked at so far would have been looked at as someone who was not at the table of the Jewish, respectable, religious circles of Jesus' day. Prostitutes and tax collectors, people with uh, health infirmities, Gentiles, those who are not born of the nationality, outsiders to Israel. But today we are looking at someone where all of that is different. Today we're looking at Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the most respected men in all of Israel. He was one of the colleagues. He was an expert in the law, and he was a colleague of the religious leaders. Nicodemus has a place at the table, but like Every single plot line of a teeny bopper movie, Nicodemus isn't so sure after coming into contact with Jesus that he is at the right table anymore. And so our question this morning is clear, and it is this, how do I know I'm at the right table? How do I know I'm at the right table? And for the context of this sermon, what is the right table? It's the table of Jesus. You know, what is the table of Jesus? How do I know I'm at the right table? I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. You've already heard it read for you, and I'm going to be referencing it throughout this sermon. John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. If you're following along in one of the Bibles that we provide in front of you, it's on page 862. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And what we're going to see is three things this morning. And really simply, they are just three characteristics of the table of Jesus. They are three characteristics of those who sit at the table of Jesus. Three characteristics of the table of Jesus. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 is our text this morning, and we're just going to get right into it. The first characteristic of the table of Jesus is that the table of Jesus is found through humble seeking. The table of Jesus is found through humble seeking. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because... He doesn't want anyone else to know in his religious circles that he's coming to Jesus. We've already seen through this text of the blind man that Jesus is a divisive figure. He's divisive, you know. Um, Some love him, some hate him, especially in the religious circles. Some love him, some hate him. But although Nicodemus is reluctant to come to Jesus, we have this text. Why? Because Jesus still received Nicodemus. Nicodemus still came. He came at night. He didn't want to be seen, but he still came. Although this engagement, this story, is colored by reluctance, it still represents a humble seeking on Nicodemus's part. He comes to Jesus and he says this in chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could do the things that you were doing unless they were to come from God, right? We know. I want you to notice here, although it's not really prevalent, uh, it doesn't stand out in the gospel text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus, that there was a non-vocal minority, a group of people who believed that Jesus was not some evil man that is from Satan, as the majority of the religious leaders believed, that there was a vocal, a non-vocal minority that ran contrary to the vocal majority, right? 
who believed that Jesus was someone special and wanted to know more. That's why chapter 3, verse 2 says, we know. It reminds us of chapter 9 when we looked at the story of the blind man. When the majority, the vocal majority of the Pharisees are saying, this man's not from God. He did this on the Sabbath. And he healed someone, and anyone who breaks the law could not possibly be from God. But remember, chapter 9, verse 16, the latter half of that verse says, but there was a group of people who did not agree with that vocal majority. There was a group of people who did not believe. And why did they not believe? Because anyone who was doing the works and the miracles that Jesus was doing could not be possibly someone evil, but someone good. There was a non-vocal Minority That kind of stands in the background of the text. And Nicodemus is part of this non-vocal minority. They don't necessarily understand everything there is to know about Jesus. But they are seeking after him and trying to understand. And finding the right table, I think, always starts this way. With seeking to try to understand. Finding the right table doesn't necessarily mean that you know all the right answers. It begins with humble seeking. Notice that the way that Nicodemus starts this conversation with with Jesus is not started by a question that he looks for Jesus to answer. Notice what he says. We know that you are a teacher that comes from God for no one that wasn't couldn't could do the miracles that you do. And notice then that Jesus launches in. He doesn't respond to Nicodemus' question. He launches and starts, Jesus directs the conversation in response to Nicodemus' humble and genuine seeking. Humble and genuine seeking. Now Nicodemus is perhaps one of the foremost teachers in Israel at that day. You know, imagine this. He's one of the foremost teachers. In fact, chapter 3, verse 10, the text says, how or you are Israel's teacher. The, the text here, it kind of shows you, but in the Greek, the original writing, this is a definite article. You are Israel's teacher, the teacher of Israel, not indefinite, a teacher, right? It's like when we say Michael Jordan is the best basketball player that ever lived, that, that tastes like bile, bile in my mouth because I don't like him that much. But anyway, <laughs> I was a Pistons fan. I grew up in Michigan, so that's my dislike, you know? He ended our era, which was two years, should have been three, but I won't talk to you about sports. Uh, He is the best basketball player, not one of a number of the best basketball players that ever lived, right? Nicodemus was the the foremost teacher in all of Israel, and what does Nicodemus do? He comes to Jesus, not, not as an inquisitor validating the words of Jesus to see if he is genuine or false. Not an inquisitor. He, not as a skeptic. He comes to Jesus uh, as a seeker who is humble and who is looking to learn. The foremost teacher in all of Israel. Why is this? Because our space at the table of Jesus, the space at the right table, it always begins this way, with humble seeking. And the truth is, it continues with humble seeking. If we are at the table of Jesus, we will have found our spot there through humble seeking, and our space will continue through humble seeking. And in fact, the longer you sit at the table of Jesus, the more humble you will become. 
The longer you sit at the table of Jesus, the more humble you will become. And the longer you sit at the wrong table, the table of the Pharisees and all that that represents, right? The more self-assured and self-righteous, self-assured you will become. And unfortunately, this happens far too often, doesn't it? Especially in the church. Far too happen, it happens in the church. I can remember after my first year of Bible college, uh, I got done, and that one year of Bible college changed me completely when I went to church. I used to go to church hoping to hear from God, and after one year of Bible college, I went to church uh, determining whether what I was hearing was good or not, right? That's just the natural progression, I think, of growing up, right? I used to go to church hoping to hear from God. Then I started going to church to determine and validate whether what I was hearing was good or not. And that is a really dangerous spiritual place to be, right? But I think it's a natural place to be. I think it happens very naturally. And I think even Paul later on, and I want want to take you to this text and help you see it. Paul tells us why this happens. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. And I want to invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want to read verse 27. And if you don't want to turn there, you can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Listen to what Paul says, that we are as a part of the church. And this really explains why it is sometimes dangerous if we are not careful and the church always drifts towards a wrong type of humble, not towards humble seeking, but it directs, it it always drifts if we are not careful towards self-assured and self-righteousness. Now listen to the text very closely. Now, you are a part of the body of Christ, or this is Paul's language for the church, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles and second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping and guidance and different kinds of tongues. But are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret And the answer, obviously, right, is no, not all people have those gifts, right? What was happening in the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth, is the Corinthians, the believers there, or the people that claim to be believers, were looking at these talents that the the leadership of the church has or other people, and they're thinking, I want to be the one in the front. I want to be the one that gets noticed. I want to be the one doing sign miracles and doing healing. I want to be the one in front talking to everybody. I want to be that person that everybody sees and thinks is awesome, right? And Paul says, chapter 12, verse 31, but I tell you, desire the greater gifts. He's saying, those aren't even the greatest gift. And then he goes on, and I will show you a more excellent way. And now I'm going to read you a passage that you hear at most weddings, if they're a Christian wedding. And this is the context, right? Being an apostle isn't the best. Being a teacher isn't the best. Doing miracles of healing isn't the best. Speaking in tongues isn't the best. Let me show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love. I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. For if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. For love is patient and love is kind and it does not envy 
It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. What Paul is saying here is, knowledge puffs up, but love transforms the way we look at other people, right? Knowledge puffs up. That's why in the first year, of, after I was done with the first year of Bible college, I thought I knew everything and I became an inquisitor. And that's why if we're not careful in church, if, uh, if the longer we are here and the more we know, the more the temptation of drifting towards knowledge and puffing up and having it treat people unkindly and unfairly will be a real temptation for us. But notice that Jesus who is very knowledgeable. In fact, there's a big word for, that describes his knowledge theologically. It's called omniscient, which means he knows everything, right? Jesus, who is omniscient, is a model for us that knowledge does not have to puff up, for it did not puff up him. He did not think, Jesus, look at all these little peons who don't know a fraction of what we know. It stinks that I have to come here and help them, right? Knowledge does not have to puff up, But if we are not careful, we will drift, and it will. Now, why did knowledge not puff up Jesus? And and I think I I understand why, sort of. I think I understand why, sort of. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17, we are told that when Jesus came to earth, he was full of grace and full of truth, right? He was full of grace, and he was full of truth. The perfect embodiment of both. All my life in my churches, I've been warned against the slippery slope, right? Have you ever heard this language, the slippery slope? And that if we give up on truth, we will go down a slippery slope and like, if you don't believe this particular thing, that'll lead you down the slippery slope and all of a sudden you're going to forsake Jesus altogether. That's never made sense to me completely, right? Now, does truth matter a great deal? Of course it does right? And there are things we can give in on, on truth, that will send us down a slippery slope of destruction. No question. But notice that all slopes are slippery, right? All slopes are slippery. There is also, while there is the slippery slope of truth, while you can start denying truth for the sake of love and grace, and you can go down into destruction where you start to deny the real things that matter most about Jesus and about Christianity, of course there's a slippery slope there. But there is a slippery slope on the other side, isn't there? The slippery slope of grace, where we will go down the slope and we will think we know the answer and we will start to treat people poorly who do not think and believe and behave like us. It's a slippery slope, the slippery slope of ungraciousness. I've been asked before, what do you think is more important, grace or truth? And if you had to choose between the two, what would you choose, right? We cannot choose. We simply cannot choose. There's not one that is more important, grace and truth. We cannot choose. Will we always get it right? Of course we won't always get it right. But by the very fact that we say, if I have to err, I'm going to err on the side of truth. Or if I have to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace. Right there, you're, <laughs> you're giving in to something that you ought not give in to. Strive to be full of grace and truth. 
And if the truth that you hold does not lead you to a greater expression of love, then probably the truths that you are holding are either incorrect or being held wrongly, right? And if you are being gracious and you are denying that Jesus is the Son of God for the sake of inclusiveness, then you are in danger, right? The slippery slope. All slopes are slippery. And do you know, you know, I went to L.L. Bean once, right? I've been there a bunch of times. I never buy anything hardly. I just look, you know, because that's the kind of store you just look at. But anyway, um, do you notice uh, at L.L. Bean, there is, there is these things you can buy. I think they're like $30. And you can put them on the bo- bottom of your boots, and they help you in icy conditions, you know, like they kind of cling to that. They're not quite like those guys that w- climb the waterfalls, but they're those, they, they dig into the ground, and you don't slip as much, Right? Do you know what helps you not to go down the slippery slope of grace or the slippery slope of truth? It's like L.L. Bean, those, those things that, that, that cling into the ground. You know what it is? It's humility. That's what it is. It's humility. If you're humble, you will seek. If you are humble, you will not say, that person doesn't know as much as I am. I am awesome and better. If you are humble, you will not say to yourself, truth doesn't matter, and so I'm just going to let people do whatever they want and, you know, empower that. Humility, humble seeking, Nicodemus, reluctant, scared, doesn't want anybody else to know, but humble seeking. How do I know I'm at the right table? First, it's found through humble seeking. Second, You know you're at the right table if you are at a table of wonder and mystery. For the table of Jesus is a table of wonder and mystery. Have you noticed this? When God reveals himself to us, what is God doing? He's inviting us into a world of wonder and a world of mystery. The Pharisees saw everything literally, didn't they? They thought they understood everything and they saw everything literally And that's why when Jesus teaches the Pharisees, and here he teaches Nicodemus, Nicodemus has such a hard time understanding, right? Nicodemus doesn't start the flow of the conversation. In fact, Jesus does. And when he starts the flow of the conversation, he starts it this way. I tell you the truth, you will not enter into or see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, right? You will not enter it. And Nicodemus... uh, very literally thinks to himself, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, he's still humble seeking, but in his mind, he's thinking that's ridiculous. How can someone enter back into the womb of their mother and be born again? That was hard enough on her the first time. I would never want to do that. We would be entering into sci-fi territory, you know, where it's like, oh, you thought it's somebody. Too bad. They just broke open and here's another something. You know what I mean? No, you don't. That's fine. Just forget that one. (laughs) That was a stupid illustration. Nicodemus is thinking literally, how can someone be born again? He's thinking literally. And Jesus is inviting Nicodemus into a world of wonder and mystery. In fact, I think the scriptures themselves, what are they? They are, uh, they are how God reveals himself to us, right? The scriptures are the way that God has revealed himself to us. And did you know that we really only have language for that which we can imagine or have imagined or experienced? That's all we can describe, right? We can only describe the things that we have 
experienced or we've imagined, right? Experience, we're telling our, our experiences. Imagine now we're in the world of sci-fi again, yeah? This is why I think we need humility so greatly because when we are invited into the world of God, we're being invited into a world of mystery and wonder where things that we have never experienced or imagined are being described to us in a way where God is trying to contextualize himself to us in a way that we can understand, and yet we struggle to understand so much of it. <laughs> imagine, describing, uh, imagine describing what a Pegasus is to somebody who has no conception of what a horse is or what wings are, right? It's impossible. It's almost impossible. And yet, God, whose ways are so much higher and greater and beyond our ways, has condescended to give us the scriptures and to give us his son. Why? So that he might reveal himself to us. And yet, so much of the ways of God, notice how how, uh, Jesus describes it to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Nicodemus, how can I do that? I can't enter into my mother's womb. And then notice what he says. The the spirit is what (laughs) helps you be born again. And the spirit... uh, blows wherever it pleases, verse 8. You hear it sound. You cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus, verse 9, just says, I don't understand, right? That's what he's saying. How can this be? But Nicodemus's how can this be of verse 9 is not a how can this be of I don't want to push in, but is a how can this be of I want to understand, help me no more. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Have you heard this? Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Nicodemus's beliefs are being significantly challenged here, but he remains willing to listen. The Pharisees, in general, see the world as tidied up, labeled and sorted into neat piles, and yet... Jesus is breaking down all those compartments, right? All those categories. And Nicodemus, instead of throwing condemnation at Jesus, is through this chapter, his wonder and his curiosity and his faith is being increased. His faith. The table of Jesus is a table of wonder and a table of mystery. It is a table of humble seeking, and finally, the table of Jesus is a table of salvation, not condemnation. Jesus' table is a table of salvation, not condemnation. In fact, the text says that specifically, verse 18, 17 and 18, that Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why? This is so important. Because the world stands condemned already, right? I think sometimes it can be easy for those apart from Jesus who don't understand the Christian faith to think that we're all doing just fine and that Jesus comes in and the message of Christianity is, now Jesus has come and if you don't believe the right things about him, you'll go to hell and if you do, you'll go to heaven. You know, like we were all fine and then this guy came and now he's messed everything up and he's created division, like believe in me or pay, you know, type of idea. Um, It's like Loki in the first uh, Avengers movie. He comes and he's like, I am the God, the superhero, follow me or die, you know, type of thing. And I think sometimes people get a wrong impression of Jesus. 
he did not come to a world that was doing okay and caused division so that you have to choose me or die. He came into a world that stood condemned already and everybody was on a path of death. And he represented a way of salvation. Do you see the difference there? A way of salvation. The world stood condemned already and Jesus came to save. And those who place their faith in Jesus, whoever believes will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might never perish, but have eternal life. Jesus and his very mission was a mission of salvation and not condemnation. Does this mean uh, that condemnation and judgment is not real? Of course it doesn't. Jesus never says that. In fact, he says if they don't believe in him, they stand condemned already. It's not that there is no judgment. It does mean, however, though, that God is not eager to condemn. He is eager to save. And even in the condemnation, his condemnation is reserved for evil. And unfortunately, in this world, there are people who choose and refuse to give up evil. And God will judge evil. But the table of Jesus is not a table where we, are eager, where we are eager to dole it out. Are you eager to dish out condemnation? Then you are probably not at the right table, right? Or are you eager to offer people the love of Jesus and see them experience salvation? That's a good sign that you are at the right table, right? Remember that little scene in... Um, the Fellowship of the Ring, where Frodo says, I wish Bilbo would have just killed Gollum, right? Do you remember what Gandalf says back to him? There are some that deserve death that live, and there are some that deserve life that die. Can you give it to them, right? Do not be eager, so eager to dole out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends, right? Do not be eager to dish out condemnation for those of us who have experienced the salvation of Jesus and who are his followers. We will be eager to dish out grace and salvation. Can we do it? Of course we can. It's a work of the Spirit of God, but we pray that the Spirit of God might work through us so that people might see the beauty and the salvation of Jesus, the Son of God, who died so that the world's sins might be forgiven. What table are you at this morning? Are you at the table with the Pharisees? Or are you at the table of Jesus that Nicodemus is coming to see and will see fuller? What table are you at? If you are an insider, and so many of us in this room are, right? Because we're speaking to church people. Certainly not all of you this morning will be longtime church people, but a lot of you will. We are the insiders. We understand what church looks like. We understand what it feels like. We know what to expect and what to do for many of us. If you are the insider, what will you do? Uh, what can you find at the table of Jesus? If you find yourself becoming, uh, you know, self-assured and self-righteous, 
Is there still a place for you at the table of Jesus? The answer of Nicodemus is such an encouraging one. The answer is yes. And what can you find at the table of Jesus? He will engage with you. And he is looking to answer your questions, maybe in ways that you didn't understand, didn't know you were asking, but he is looking to transform your heart and to show you the way of love and the way of grace and the truth of his son. If you are the insider, what will you do? If you found Jesus, you will follow Jesus, no matter what the consequences are. Nicodemus, we will see. Uh, and there's going to be, we're going to put together a block a blog post this week about it. And we know a little bit more about Nicodemus than all, we know more about him than just John 3. Later on, Nicodemus will be a man who stands up for Jesus publicly in front of the Pharisees, his, his colleagues. Uh, and later on, along with Joseph of Arimathea, he will be a man that will bury Jesus after his death on the cross. This is a man that grew in faith, the foremost teacher of Israel. And what did he do? He followed Jesus despite the consequences. And, if you are a follower of Jesus, how will you interact with the insider who is not living or understanding grace and you will be loving and gracious and help them to find truth? Loving and gracious and help them find truth. This morning as we, as we come to the communion table, we do so once again asking the Spirit of God to soften our hearts so that in humility we can see our desperate need for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who although we stood condemned already, came to offer us all salvation. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray and invite you forward. But I'm going to pray for us this morning that the Spirit of God might work in our hearts and use what are just physical representations, symbols, of Christ's broken body and shed blood to soften our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus, to soften your hearts, to help you understand that no matter your past experiences, whether you are the insider, outsider, hopeless, uh, uh, the sinner, or the pragmatist, that there is a place at the table of Jesus for you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your love, which you've shown us through Jesus, who came while we uh, were ungodly and died for us, so that we might not stand condemned, but we might stand as your precious and beloved children, the children of God. And this morning, as we come forward to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ that makes it all possible for our acceptance and for our salvation, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts by the power of your spirit to help us live out of that reality day by day and to offer that reality to others. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.